This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in, and I am Mark Gerson, the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, we will be speaking with Rabbi Mark Wilds about Exodus 2.12. Rabbi Wilds founded Manhattan Jewish Experience more than 20 years ago, and in the process has brought a generation of Jews, primarily in their 20s and 30s, closer to the values, practices, texts, and teachings of our faith. He is the author of Beyond the Instant, Jewish Wisdom for Lasting Happiness in a Fast-Paced Social Media World. In addition, Rabbi Wilds is an amateur rock musician, and perhaps we can start the discussion about that. Uh, Mark, what instruments do you play? Thanks for asking. Uh, I play the drums and percussion. I've been playing since I'm 12. Uh, blues and rock are my favorite. Your inspiration, your favorite rock musician is John Lennon. Yeah, John Lennon is uh, was actually my dad's friend uh, and client for many years. My father still practices immigration law, and when the government was trying to uh, kicked John out of the country because of his anti-Vietnam stance. After the Beatles broke up, my father uh, defended him. He was in court with him for about four to five years and prevented his deportation. And I was actually the only one in my family who actually fell in love with his music. My dad's still into just classical music, never loved rock and roll. And just, I'm a crazy, crazy obsessed Beatle fan. And I uh, actually got to meet Paul McCartney very recently. Did you tell him about your uh, relationship with John Lennon? Yeah, I was with my dad, actually, at my nephew and niece's graduation from law school, the same law school I attended. And Paul was sitting four rows in back of me, told my father, I said, Dad, Paul McCartney's sitting right there. Let's go over. And I pulled my father over. I said, Paul, I'm really sorry to interrupt you. He was sitting next to his wife. And I, I said, I don't know if you know, but my father, you know, was, and then he jumps in. He goes, your father was my my mate John's lawyer. He's a famous man. And tell me, Leon. Oh wow! His name. He says, "What did you, what did you do to get so famous?" Anyway, it was just he could not have been nicer. I'm just I don't know. I really love their music. I continue to play it and to I've been unsuccessful getting my kids though to fall in love with it. But you know, can't always be successful at everything. Well, you've gotten your kids to fall in love with the Torah. That I've been successful with so far, so far. <laughs> and you've gotten thousands of other people too. Um, how many marriages have you arranged or enabled in your 20 plus years of running MJE? So we're up to 332, not that we're counting, <laughs> but we have 332 couples who have met and married through MJE over the last 20 years. I'm extremely proud of that figure. And, uh, you know, and it's not just a question of the meeting, you know, bumping into each other at an MG event. It's the whole courtship. It's staying in touch with them during the marriage because, you know, as you, as you know, Mark, today it's uh, the trick isn't just getting married, it's staying married. And we're also very, very proud of the fact that, you know, we have good relationships and uh, we don't push people into getting married. We want to make sure people are making the right informed decisions, but uh, are doing it in a way that's going to hopefully last and withstand the test of time. Now, I remember you telling me something uh, many years ago when uh, I guess we were both genuinely young men. And at, at that point, you, you, you said, um, we just hit 50 marriages. You told me one marriage, one of the 50 came from a party you threw. You said the other 49 came out of Torah study. 
And the conclusion that you drew from that was that serious relationships derive from serious Jewish engagement. In other words, the parties by themselves don't work, but when people are doing something meaningful and significant together, then meaningful relationships, even romantic relationships, can develop. Yeah, I think that's so true, and I keep seeing it again and again, because the more you can let your guard down, the more you don't have to put on that fake face that unfortunately we have to do when we're at a party or you know a big event holding a drink. And when you're actually having a conversation about something substantive that touches on values, that's an automatic, you know, that, that right away connects a couple in, in a way that you, you can't really be connected at some kind of cocktail, you know, event or a bar. And that's why our retreats, like we do a ski retreat every year and a spring retreat, and we, we travel to Israel. We have two groups that come to Israel every summer with us. Those are like the best because there you're traveling with people, you're seeing people looking different at different times, really being themselves. The more we can get people to be themselves and connect on an intellectual and spiritual level, that's going to connect people, and that's going to increase the number of marriages we're going to see. So I, we still do you know, cocktail events and uh, you know, cocktails on the roof. I mean, Corona now, I don't even remember the last one we did. We do big Shabbat dinners, but those are really just to get people in the door so they see MGE as a place of comfort, of interest, but then they're going to hopefully come back for a class, for a seminar, or a retreat. Those classes, seminar, and retreats are really how people meet and marry. Okay, so speaking of uh, serious Jewish engagement and the Torah text, I'm so delighted that you chose Exodus 2.12. I'll read the passage, and then I'll, I'll ask you to kind of put it in the context of what happened before Moses got to this stage, basically um, Exodus 2. So Exodus 2.12 is, He, Moses, turned this way, and that way, and saw there was no man. So he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Mark, what happened uh, before that moment in Moses' career? Great. So uh, it is one of my favorite, favorite verses in the Torah and the Bible. And the context and what happened before is key to understanding the verse you just read. Because Moshe, we see Moses possesses a real sense of Jewish identity. On the other hand, he is raised, of course, in the house of Pharaoh, and he's a prince. And the Torah tells us earlier, where it says, that Moses went out to his brothers. He saw these Jewish slaves working in the field. And a lot of the commentators say that when, when he saw his brothers, why does he have to say he saw his brothers? The text could have simply said he saw those Jews. He saw those brothers because he identified, he understood that he himself was a Jew, even though he was raised as a privileged prince in the house of Pharaoh. And then the next words, when it says that he saw their affliction, he didn't simply see it from afar, the sages teach, but he placed his eyes and his heart to feel with them. And on one hand, Moshe is therefore this prince, raises an Egyptian as a free man. On the other hand, he's very much aware of his Jewish roots and his connection to the slave people. And in a sense, he's living in two worlds. And, and I can't imagine, and this is my understanding of the, of the verse you just read, I can't imagine that he didn't experience some kind of conflict because, mm -hmm. you know, or sent, uh, some feelings of guilt if he's Jewish and like, I mean, he's keeping quiet about what's going on there, but he's got this cushy life in the house of Pharaoh. He doesn't want to maybe ruin that situation for himself. On the other hand, why is he walking around looking at the slaves? So much so that what brings us into that verse is he sees a fellow Jew being beaten by an Egyptian. And that is really where things come 
to a dramatic moment in the Torah, because we all have conflicts, and I think we all live in two different worlds, but there's always that moment where we're forced to choose. So Moses is at that moment. As you said, he's a Hebrew who was saved by the Pharaoh's daughter and raised as basically the Pharaoh's daughter's son, raised as the Pharaoh's grandson. So he's raised in the Egyptian palace, but he's a Jew. He has this dual identity. And then he comes outside. He sees an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man, as you said, of his brethren. And what does he do? So the text, as you just read, says that he looks one way. He looks on the other way. He sees that there's no one watching, and he smites the Egyptian. He kills the Egyptian, and he buries him in the sand. I think there's something else going on here, which is really why I love this particular verse. And I think that many verses in the Bible have sort of, can have dual meanings. They can have more of a simple understanding just to keep us through the narrative and the, and the story, right? Moshe wanted to see if he, get a, he can get away with this. He's going to kill an Egyptian officer. The sages actually teach that, that through his prophetic vision, he was able to see that if he didn't intervene, that this Jew would have lost his life. Right. And I, 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 I think it's also interesting in this passage, I don't think it can be read literally that he actually, that he was actually alone with an Egyptian and a Hebrew because they were all outside in the fields and people in the fields are typically not solitary. And in fact, the next day, people were already talking. This is from the biblical text. People were already talking about what Moses had just done. Correct. That's right. So which is interesting because it seems to imply no one's looking. He looks one way, looks the other. No one's around. But then if no one was around, it's an excellent point, Mark. If no one was around, then when he tries to break up the fight between the two Jews, that's the next little story the, the Bible tells, one of them turns to the other and says, you're going to kill us? You're going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? So you know that he actually was seen. Right. And this, and this, this was known. So it's, it's difficult to read it literally, you know, and just say, oh, nobody was around. You know, what, what kind of scenario was that, that there was nobody there? And if no one was there, then how did these other guys find out? So I think that's a really important point, which really, I think, pushes us to look into that verse deeper. And I heard this from a friend of mine. I want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, you know, the Talmud says that when you quote your sources, you bring redemption to the world. So I heard this years ago from a dear friend, Ari Berman, who is now the president of Yeshiva University. And he suggested the following interpretation, which was that when Moshe looked one way, and he looked the other way, and it says he saw that there was no man. It doesn't simply mean he was looking one way and the other to see if the coast was clear, if he can get away with this, but he was looking inside of him. And he looked one way, and he saw the Egyptian within him, and he looked the other way, and he saw the Jew within him, and he realized because he was living in both of these worlds, and he was on the fence, he was no man. And then it says, Vayach et he smites the Egyptian, Vayitzminehu b'chol, and he buries him in the sand. Once he does that, once he actually kills, if you will, the Egyptian within him, he then goes on to do great things for the people of Israel. And he becomes this incredibly powerful and decisive leader who eventually stands before the same Pharaoh that he has to now run away from. He comes back and stands before Pharaoh and demands the release of his brethren, of his people. But he's only able to do this, suggested uh, my friend, Ari Berman, once he killed the Egyptian within him, once he understood who he was, as long as we stay on the fence, as long as we try to be everything for everyone, we can't really be, I mean, we can live that way and you can go a long time in your life 
many of us, and Moses did it himself, where you can kind of straddle that fence. On the other hand, if you really want to be a leader, you need to have a vision, you need to have a focus goal, and you need to know who you are. I think that's a beautiful, a beautiful teaching and, a, and, and the right way to interpret this passage if we look at the Torah as a guidebook for our lives, which I think we should. And I think one of the lessons we can derive from this is that you become a man when you decide what you want to fight for. And as long as you're on that fence, you're not a man. But once you make that choice, this is what I'm going to fight for. And then Moses, in fact, spent the rest of his life fighting for the Jewish people and for freedom and for all that freedom meant and all that the Jewish people could become. So he made that decision who he was going to fight for, and he defined himself as a man forever. 100%. I mean, if you look at what the Bible tells us immediately after the story, you see him breaking up a fight between two Jewish people. You see him then protecting Jethro's daughters from the shepherds and then going on to confront Pharaoh and demanding the release of his enslaved brothers and sisters. But you're right. He, you can't do that. You can't fight for others if you don't really know who you are yourself. And I think this was a pivotal moment in Moshe's early life. I think it's really interesting also, I was going to mention something else, which is how ironic that our Jewish, you know, the Jewish savior was someone not raised amongst the Jews. You know, there was something positive about that. And I think it's the Ibn Ezra, a great Spanish commentator who suggested that had Moses been raised as a slave, amongst his brethren, and not as a privileged prince in the house of Pharaoh, he may not have been able to develop that kind of audacity to eventually stand up to Pharaoh, because he might have adopted the same kind of slave mentality that his brethren were living under. And maybe he needed to be, you know, and, and this is sort of like to fine-tune or tweak a little the message here, which is that we shouldn't feel badly about the different worlds in which we live, we might be raised in a couple of different worlds and have different sides for good reason. It was meant to be. We were supposed to develop some part of ourselves. But at some point, you got to know who you are. And if possible, take the good. You know, Moses was able to take the good from the house of Pharaoh. Now, what was the good? Pharaoh was an evil dictator, and he, he was an oppressive tyrant. But he also could learn strength and power. Very interesting. And if you can direct strength and power in the right way, then his being raised by an Egyptian tyrant could have been actually a good thing. And I think that the, the, the teaching which you just shared about the importance of learning from everything, even the Pharaoh's palace, is such an important lesson from the Torah. In fact, the term Baruch Hashem, which is what we Jews say every day, sometimes all day, whenever there's something in the future, will something happen? God willing, Baruch Hashem, it will happen. That phrase, Baruch Hashem, appears six times in the Torah each of the six times is from a Gentile. Noah. So interesting. Yeah. yeah it's Noah, Machitzedek, Abimelech, Eliezer, Laban, and Jethro. So kind of the anthem of being a Jew, Baruch Hashem, we learned entirely and only from the Gentiles. That's, that's a really interesting point. I had not known that. Thank you for sharing that. And 100%, you know, I, I, everything happens is one of the greatest teachings of Judaism. Nothing is haphazard or coincidental, certainly not things recorded in the Torah. They're there to teach us something. And not everything has to have this pure origin of, of where, you know, that's right. Moshe's raised his parents are these righteous, you know, you know, rabbis and teachers with long beards and, and uh, devoted hmm. to the teachings of Torah. No, his, his adopting parents were, uh, you know, Pharaoh and the daughter of Pharaoh. And he was able to take something good from that, though. And I think that's a great teaching. I like the Baruch Hashem idea. Now, also, um, the term uh, Hebrew, uh, that's Ivri, does that mean the other side? 
it literally means the other side because Abraham lived on the other side of the Avrahanaar, which was the uh, in in Ur Kasdim where he was from in ancient Mesopotamia. So he was referred to that because he was from the other, but it it, it came to denote a certain otherness of the Jew in terms of philosophy, in terms of uh, one's outlook and ideology, that the Jew was always kind of the other. The world was polytheistic. Abraham believed in a one and only God and began to uh, promote that. The people that followed him became the others. They became the Hebrews, the Ivries. So to be a Hebrew then means to come from the other side. And, and in fact, that's in fact what, in one sense, we could read Exodus 2.12 of what Moses was doing, was that even if no one else was going to stand up and do anything and to fight for what's right, he was going to do it. Even the fact that all the power in the world was on the other side in Pharaoh's palace, literally Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world. Egypt was the most powerful regime in history. So all the power was on the other side. But Moses defines himself as an Ivri, as a Hebrew, by aligning himself on the side of right against or other than the defined power structure of the day. Yeah, yeah. In a sense, he's really a true descendant of Abraham. Right. You know, uh, because that's Abraham was the original Ivri. He was the original other, and, and Moshe was was taking that on. And I think, you know, the idea of being sort of countercultural, where there is an ethical value teaching, is something that we Jews are supposed to continue to live that kind of life today. Whatever it is that we're protesting, whatever it is that's unjust in the world that needs another, someone coming from another perspective to, to challenge it. I think that's a really valuable teaching uh, that, that, uh, that applies in modernity. Well, thank you for such a great discussion about Exodus uh, 2.12 and uh, looking this way and that way and seeing no man. And that'll lead into uh, the final question, which is related to Andre Malraux's 1968 book called Anti-Memoir. And it was written in 1968. And he said uh, that he had recently run into a man uh, with whom he had served in the war. And he said this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become uh, a Catholic priest. And Andre Malraux said to him, in all your years of hearing confessions, what are the two things that you've learned about mankind? And this priest said, the two things I've learned about mankind are one, that everyone is much less happy than they seem, and two, that there's no such thing as a grown-up person. So uh, Mark, in your 20 plus years of running MJE and of bringing a whole generation of young Jews closer to the Jewish faith, the Jewish traditions, Jewish values, Jewish teachings, everything Jewish, a whole generation of Jews in New York. What are the two things that you've learned about mankind? Wow. Wow. Well, two things. Number one, I would say, and this has really been helpful in the work we do, and that everyone wants to belong. I've never met anyone in all of my years that said to me, I'm not interested in being part of a group of people, a community. I don't want to matter to others. I just feel like that is sort of a common I have a lot of people, we reach out to a lot of less affiliated young Jewish professionals, may not have much of a background in Judaism or have a background, but decide they don't believe in one thing or another. So we always have struggles, conflicts, and and actually really animated conversations and debates and dialogue about what we believe. And I'm never going to get everyone to believe the same thing, but everyone wants to belong. And that's one of the most beautiful things about being part of a community. Being part of a community doesn't mean you have to necessarily believe in the same thing, and you have to subscribe to A, B, and C. I think Judaism believes in certain values, and I promote them, and I teach them. And to whatever degree, people will follow, but everybody wants to belong. The second thing, I think, is um, is really to challenge people. I think people need challenge 
when I say challenge, I, you know, we, we sort of know this when it comes to our professional aspirations. And if you don't really work hard and you're not going to become much in the professional world, if, if you don't go to a good school or work really, you know, ambitiously and tirelessly devote yourself to something, you're not going to become great at it. You'll, you'll be mediocre at whatever it is you do. And somehow there's this, I don't know, there's this sense out there that like when it comes to our Judaism, when it comes to our spiritual growth or our just developing ourselves as mentioned, as good, ethical, refined people, we can just sort of glide and, and it'll just happen on its own. And I think that what I've seen over the years is that people need to be challenged. And one of the problems, I think, in the United States is we've dumbed down Judaism so much to make it so appealing to as many people as possible. We've taken, we've taken that element out of it. You know, when was the last time you told your kid you want to be a, you know, every Jewish parent wants their kid to be a doctor, a lawyer, a professional, but you don't have to work so hard. You can just glide. It'll be fine. We'll, 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 we'll make the profession a little easier for you so that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to kill yourself to get into medical school. Or once you're in there, right? No, we, we, we motivate the individual to just work as hard as possible. But when it comes to marriage, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to being a good person, when it comes to religious observances, we, we don't really take that. We just want to be accommodating to everyone. And then we wonder, and by the way, Daniel Gordis wrote an amazing piece about this years ago, why there's been such a decline in Jewish affiliation after we've tried so hard for decades to make Judaism so appealing and so easy for people. <laughs> he said that's precisely the problem. When you make something too easy, so I, I, and I feel this with my students, that they appreciate a good workout, you know? Because you can go to the gym and have a very pleasant experience at the gym, but you won't be if you don't tear any muscle. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't tear any tissue, you're not building muscle. So I think it's the same thing I, I I would suggest in that, and that is we need to be challenged intellectually, morally, and spiritually, just like we do in other areas of our lives. Well, you know, the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas defined Judaism as a difficult freedom. <laughs> it's difficult. That's a great line. It is difficult, and people don't want to hear that because people are coming to religion, and it's not unique to Judaism. I think in Christianity, I think it's a big draw also. People are looking for something sweet and comforting when it comes to their religious life because the rest of life is where we're putting our work in, our hard work in. So we just want to you know, sleep and, and, and Shabbat and just relax and chill out and make that our spiritual life. But Unfortunately, if, you, if, if you're not extending yourself, you're not growing. So that's kind of the challenge. But, but, I, but I found that, that people want that once they see that it's necessary. Well, you know, there's in, in a truly great documentary, Facing Darkness, which is the story of uh, Samaritan's Purse uh, fighting Ebola in Liberia in 2014. The documentarian um, asked Kent Brantley, who was a Samaritan's Purse doctor who contracted Ebola and then was uh, medevac to Atlanta and, and thank God survived, documentarian said to Dr. Kent Brantley, did your faith uh, cure you? And he said, I don't know, but I know my faith got me Ebola. <laughs> and what he was talking about is, is, is part of being a faithful Christian to him was going to where the suffering was and to subjecting himself to the dangers of the disease which he contracted. And he said, what he was basically saying is, faith is a difficult endeavor. And sometimes it requires you to literally go into the fire, which is what he did. It, it wasn't about cures. It was about the suffering that, and he had to suffer to enable him to help the scores of other people that he helped during that terrible time. 
that that's an amazing story and i really think that sums up i mean that, that really captures the problem is people don't want to suffer and people don't want to you know we're, we're, we're extending ourselves in so many other areas of life we want to just kind of glide in this era we, and we want we want our judaism just to be one you know like a nice pillow but, but, but what you're saying is that when you do challenge these young people they respond and they embrace the challenge they embrace the challenge. They respond. That's why I have to tell you, I'll be honest, one of the reasons we focus in 20s and 30s, I mean, I'm 52. So like, I'm not saying people in their 40s and 50s and up, but when you get someone at a little bit younger stage, they appreciate that. They, they under, they, they, and they start seeing growth and it feels good and they come back for more. You know, whereas if we didn't push them and challenge them a little more, you know, they would, it would be very pleasant. It would be very, very nice. But you know, how long would it last and how long would it stick? And would they really start building their lives around, you know, these types of what we're asking people to do with Jewish values is make important life decisions based on Jewish values. And you're not going to do that if it doesn't mean that much to you. It's got to mean something. If you want to give your kids a Jewish education and send them to a Jewish day school, for example, it's expensive. You're not going to do that unless you actually have some passion for it. If you know, I tell people to try to spend their free time traveling to Israel, okay? Traveling to Israel for someone in their 20s, 30s, very, very expensive thing, costs a lot more money, and it's a longer trip. I said, but but if Israel means something, you're going to, again, it has to mean something if people are going to invest. And it's sort of a catch-22, because if you don't get them to invest, it doesn't mean enough, and then they're not going to further invest. I have found that it resonates, not with everyone. I found, you know, as long you still have to present things in an appealing way, but the sensitive among us know that unless there's some real commitment and and pushing through certain issues, whether they're just the psychological, emotional issues that are keeping us from growing, or just time, just a time commitment, people understand that nothing is developed without devoting themselves to something greater. And as you said, you know, really sacrificing something. Right. Well, Rabbi Wiles, thank you for devoting yourself for 20 plus years to this generation of Jews in New York and elsewhere and for bringing scores of people uh, closer to our faith in the most deep, meaningful, profound, and sometimes difficult ways. And uh, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us on this podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Mark, and you should continue your incredible work and all of the teaching that you've been doing all these years now. I look forward to continuing to learn with you. And you should also continue to have much, much joy and achas from your beautiful family. And uh, thanks for inviting me. Thank you.